When Jesus, Peter, James, and John came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If I can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out and he said to them this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer this is the word of the lord and we're starting with the questions the hardest questions surrounding the faith and then looking at what the scriptures have to say what christianity has to say in response to these questions and so i love questions i love questions especially that can't be answered Uh, very easily. So I remember hearing when airlines developed the the black box, you know, that thing that records all the flight information. And then if the plane crashes, this thing is indestructible. And so you go and you get the flight information out of there. I remember wondering, why don't they just build the whole airplane out of the black box? What are they thinking? I mean, there's a number of questions we could think of. Why do we say an alarm went off when clearly it went on? Why do we ride in a car, but on a bus? And shouldn't cowboys be called horse boys? The big questions of life that we all have that we can't answer. We live in a mysterious world. But what we're looking at in this series is eight or so of the hardest questions related to life and religion. And so we put up uh, a web page over the past couple weeks where you can submit your own questions. And we've had 20 or 30 or even more really, really good questions. So it seems that you all are very interested or our community is very interested we don't know who the questions are coming from they really are anonymous it could just be one guy in his dorm room pounding out 20 or 30 at different intervals throughout the week Uh, and if so uh, thank you and he can keep doing that Uh, but what i want to do as as we start this series is sort of set the table for the next eight weeks what why why are we doing this who who is this for what what is the purpose of questioning christianity And I can think of a few reasons why we're doing this as a church and why we're doing it now. And the first reason is that we don't have a lot of safe spaces in our community to talk about religion. We don't have a lot of places in our world where you can talk about hard issues without arguing. Especially in our our country right now, our our people have become more and more divided uh, with each passing year. 
And one of the things we've seen among religious and conservative people is that they feel like they're being marginalized and misrepresented and threatened. They look at the world and they look at the, the major media companies, whether it's the New York Times or, or social media, and they, they see a world that's becoming increasingly progressive. They look to the university culture. They look to uh, all, all sorts of different, you know, uh, the arts, creative uh, fields, and they see a, a growing sense of, of secularism, and, and it seems that Christians are being marginalized, and in a sense, that's true. And yet, on the other side, people who are secular, who claim no religion, uh, who are more progressive in their thinking, also feel misrepresented, also feel marginalized, also feel threatened. And they would argue that you only have to look at our past election and our current administration to, to see that Christendom this, this uneasy partnership between Christianity and power, it's alive and well. And so on both sides, both Christians and non-Christians, each of us feel a little bit threatened. And really what's happening is that both of our groups are actually growing. Bible-believing, church-growing Christianity is on the rise among young people in our country, especially in the biggest cities, especially among people of color. It's actually thriving. At the same time, the people that claim no religion at all, their growth is, is exponential as well. There are three times as many people claiming no religion among 18 to 30 as there were just a decade ago. And so what you have is Christianity on the rise and secularism on the rise, and what's shrinking is everything in the middle, that sort of religious but non-practicing sector that used to be almost everyone, it's now shrinking and disappearing, which I think is probably a good thing. But what happens is that both communities feel threatened, marginalized, and uh, misunderstood. And so we need a safe place to come together, and that's part of the reason for this series. Another reason for this series is that we want to make space for the questions of our own community. They really do matter to us. We want to listen to the, the questions that people are actually asking, not just the ones we think they're asking. Often our friends might say, I, I would consider going to church, but when are they going to talk about the questions that I actually have? And so in this series, we actually are adapting each of the messages and some of the topics. Uh, next week's sermon was uh, basically just out of the, the questions that have been coming in. We've rearranged things to try to look at the questions that have been coming in most frequently. So we want to make space for the questions of our community. And if you're here, or even for those who are, are listening online, which we've discovered is a bigger group than we expected, for those folks, we, even if you're not sure about Christianity, even if you're not personally interested in Christianity, it's still incredibly valuable just to find out about the major religion in your own community. In the same way as Christians, we want to we respond to people outside the faith with, with integrity and with honesty and sincerity. We don't want to create stereotypes of what people are like outside the church and then attack those stereotypes. And said, we want to understand our community, we want to know, and we want to love our community, and that's why we're receiving questions from the community. But then the third reason why we're doing this is that we want to recognize and make space for our own doubts as believers. We, we recognize that every, every Christian has a, an amount of doubt within their hearts, and we think that's actually okay. Our posture throughout this series is not that Christianity is an airtight case that if we just explain it right, then everybody will believe it's just a matter of getting the words right. 
You know, instead, Christianity is a belief system, a faith system. That means we can't connect every single dot. There's a point at which reason leads us only so far, and then we have to believe. We have to have faith. We have to trust. And we recognize that in that, in the life of every believer, there's going to be doubts. And so if you've been a Christian for a long time, if you grew up in the church, you may be thinking, why would we question Christianity? That sounds like a recipe for disaster. Why would we not only acknowledge our doubts, but even embrace our doubts? And I would say it's even more dangerous not to do that. So over the summer, there was a, a really popular Christian musician, Marty Sampson, uh, part of Hillsong. And so this is a, a spiritual celebrity. He leads worship and music for like 80,000 people at a time, has a huge following online. But over the summer, he left Christianity. And so this made the headlines. He posted on Facebook, and here's, here's what he said. He said, I'm genuinely losing my faith, and it doesn't bother me. Like, what bothers me now is nothing. I'm so happy now, so at peace with the world, it's crazy. Why is the Bible full of contradictions? No one talks about it. How can God be love and yet send four billion people to a place all because they don't believe? No one talks about it. Science keeps piercing the truth of every religion. Lots of things help people change their lives, not just one version of God. Got so much more to say, but for me, I'm keeping it real. And so, well, first of all, I think Samson's 47. At a certain point, we need to eliminate the phrase keeping it real. If we can agree on that, it's somewhere around the age of like 15. Um, <laughs> But I, I do resonate with his questions. I appreciate his honesty, his honesty to share these questions publicly online. And yet at the same time, I, I look at somebody who's been in Christian leadership for 25 years and hasn't explored the fundamentals of the faith. And I say it's far more dangerous not to explore those doubts, not to ask those questions. And so what we're doing in this series, I hope, is not just philosophical, but it's really personal. It's really practical. I don't have a philosophy degree. I, I have a, a, a master's degree in Bible and theology, but it was mostly like night school and online. So it's like the tech school version of the seminary degree. Uh, Casey's got the real version. I'm sure he'll tell you all about it. He went to Europe for a few years. He'll tell you all about it. It's not a competition. Do you really? Well, good. We'll put you on the schedule then. My expertise is early 90s basketball trivia, NBA, so we'll put that on another week. I'm not the authority on, on anything. I'm not trying to represent all of Christianity, speak for all Christians throughout time. That's not our posture in this series. But instead, what we want to do is, is present Christianity in a way that's honest, uh, hopefully that's compelling. We want to respond to the, to the hardest questions in our culture and in our community, and I think what we do have as church is, is a lot of compassion for those outside the faith. We have real relationships with these people and we love them dearly and we want to know what they think and how they are processing Christianity. And then we, we have a lot of patience and compassion for those inside the church who are struggling and stumbling as well. And so our posture is not one of having it all figured out. Our posture is one of trying to come alongside and, and, and point forward and, and encourage. At the same time, we're not unbiased facilitators either. 
Casey and I's approach is not to, to be the world religions professor that just sets everything out in front of you and says, you know, make your own choice. No, we are pastors and you're at church right now and we're going to try to compel you towards Christianity. Anything less would be, would be dishonest. And so we are going to give our best shot over the next eight weeks to present the gospel, the good news of Christianity in a way that makes you want to believe. And so our first question, question for today, right out of the gate, how can I believe in something I can't prove? It's an important question. And I think it's important that we look at this question first because before every other question about doctrines and, and things of the Christian faith, we ask, why do we believe anything in the first place? What, what is belief? What's the relationship between faith and, and reason, between the mind and the heart or the spirit? And so the outline today, it's just two points because there's been a long introduction. Uh, I promise three or more points from here on out, three to seven. The outline today is two things, the problem of proof and the leap of faith. And so first, the problem of proof. Uh, you've probably heard a question like this uh, over and over in your life. And, and just the other day, I was on Twitter and one of my pastor friends had posted something about his church and immediately right in first comment uh, was somebody saying, uh, saying this, why do Christians build their whole lives on something but can't prove it? He said, I've asked every pastor, every priest, every rabbi, every teacher from every religion I've ever met to prove their religion, and no one has ever been able to do it. If a God existed, then he would have made it clear by now, and we would all believe. Now, I'm not writing this guy off because he had six followers and no profile picture. I think it is a decent question to ask. I resonate with a lot of it. Why wouldn't God if he exists, simply just reveal himself to everyone in, in an incredible way that's just case closed. This is, this is who I am and this is what you are to do with your lives. I understand the desire for proof, for unshakable, airtight, impenetrable proof that you absolutely cannot disagree with if you are a smart and a thinking person. The problem with this, though, is that it sort of puts us not... God in the center of the universe. It makes us tell God what we want from him, what kind of proof we need from him if we are going to believe in him. God is accommodating us in this situation. Now, first of all, what kind of proof are we asking for? If you, if you look up proof in a, in a dictionary, you're going to find five or six very different definitions. A proof in philosophy means one thing. Proof in calculus means something else. Proof in a courtroom means something different still. And so what do you mean, what are you asking for when you're asking for proof? And so this is the problem of proof, that Christians cannot prove the existence of God, but also that non-Christians cannot prove the non-existence of God. It's equally true that if we cannot prove fully, airtight case that God exists, it's also true that you cannot prove with an airtight case that God doesn't exist. One of the things we hear in our culture a lot is that secular people have reason and proof, they have science, but religious people have faith, they have feelings, they have experience. And these two things are, are seen as like polar opposites where you have to choose between reason and, and you know, uh, science and things that are empirically uh, you know, evident, you can analyze them, they're objective, and yet on the other hand, this very subjective faith experience. And those two things are, are shown as polar opposites when that's, that's not true. It's not true because Christianity has a great deal of evidence 
forth. There's a lot of reason to believe in Christianity. And at the same time, one of the things I want to argue today is that a secular worldview has just as much faith in it as Christianity does. To, to not believe in Christianity, to believe in the secularism that our, our world has embraced, requires just as much of a leap of faith as Christianity does, if not more. Now, what I described earlier from the worship leader, those are called deconversion stories now, and you'll see these online as much as you see uh, testimonies of faith. You see the deconversion stories. They're called extimonies sometimes, people that are, are moving away from faith. And almost all of these stories are based on what's called a subtraction theory in philosophy. So again, we're just dabbling in philosophy, try to hang with it, but there is a philosopher I've mentioned before named Charles Taylor, one of the most uh, prominent philosophers of the past century, uh, not a Christian at all, very much an atheist. But his life's work in this book, A Secular Age, was to show that, that secularism was just as much of a religion as anything else. And it takes just as much of a leap of faith as anything else. And in a subtraction theory, what people are saying is, I used to believe this, but once I took it away, then I could see everything else. And the problem that he says is you're still actually seeing just about everything from that perspective that you held in the first place. And for the most part, nothing is actually replacing it. And so what Taylor does is he shows that secular belief in our Western world is just as much religious as any other world religion. And so to be a non-Christian or non-religious in our world, it means embracing certain doctrines, doctrines like atheism, evolutionary biology, natural selection. It means embracing a certain lifestyle, which includes the acceptance of all people, not, uh, not offending anyone. In the same way, secularism has penalties for non-belief. You get removed from the community. You're put on the outside as somebody who, who doesn't believe or doesn't understand. And so the problem that this philosopher is posing is that if by definition God is the one thing outside of us, outside of our system, then we can't possibly prove that he doesn't exist. So if by definition God is something completely bigger than us, completely beyond us, he created our universe, he sustains our universe, he is by definition outside of our system, we, we cannot therefore say that he does or doesn't exist. No matter what, you're taking a leap of faith. You may have heard of, of Pascal's wager. Blaise Pascal was a scientist and a philosopher centuries ago. And this, this famous uh, Pascal wager says, you can't prove that there is a God, but you can't prove that there's not a God. So either way, you're, you're basing your entire life on an act of faith. So in this sense, everybody is religious. We're all reaching a point where we have to choose, where we've come to the end of reason and logic, and we actually have to choose what we're going to believe in. We choose what leap of faith we're going to make. And although we would maybe want to say that we're purely objective, that we're unbiased, that we're just looking at the facts and exploring everything, we also have to acknowledge, whether we're Christian or non-Christian, that we're operating from a set of background beliefs. Every single one of us has, has background beliefs that, that influence what we believe. We're all essentially believing what we want to be true. If I'm being honest, I, I want Christianity to be true. My life would be a whole lot less pleasant if I decided to leave Christianity at this point. Namely, my paycheck would be <laughs> hanging in the balance. And so I admit that it's good for me 
right now in this moment to continue believing Christianity. And yet at the same time, I think the, the secular person has to say the same thing, that they want their belief system to be true as well. There's a philosopher at New York University who's still alive, Thomas Nagel. He's an atheist, and this is what he says in one of his books. I want atheism to be true. It isn't just that I don't believe in God, and naturally I hope I'm right. I hope there is no God. I don't want the universe to be like that. He writes, my guess is that this cosmic authority problem I have is not a rare condition and that it is responsible for much of the scientism and reductionism of our time. It's just as irrational to be influenced in one's belief by the hope that God doesn't exist as by the hope that he does exist. And so there is no one who is perfectly unbiased, operating without background beliefs, operating apart from their feelings, who's genuinely able to just explore all the options and choose what is definitively right. Everyone is religious. We're even more religious in our lifestyles than we think. Even those outside the church, the whole value system is still based on Christian morals and ethics. If you think about it, it takes an incredible leap of faith to believe secularism when it comes to our morals and values. If there's one thing that I think our entire Western world would agree on, if there's one value or one source of morality that we would, all, we would all agree on, it's that all humans have equal rights, that, that we all have equal worth and dignity, and so that nobody can be taken advantage of, nobody can be enslaved. I think nearly our entire country would agree with that right now, as they should. The problem is, first of all, you could say, how can you, how can you prove that? How can you prove that all people have equal worth? You can prove that all people are homo sapiens, but you cannot prove that all people have equal worth and value from an objective scientific place. You're, you're operating in the world of religion when you do that. In the same way, when you ask, where do my values and my morals come from if you're outside the faith, you have to recognize how many of them are actually coming from Christianity and from Judaism and other religions. I remember when I was a, a, a student at Mizzou, I, was, I got a microbiology degree and I worked in the medical school after that. And I would have times where people would ask me, isn't it, isn't it a, a, a conflict that you're a Christian and you love science? And I remember just never fully understanding what the conflict would be. In my mind, it's always taken a, a far greater leap of intellectual reasoning and, and faith to be a, a purely objective person and then come out with morals and values at all. I mean, think about it from a, a biology standpoint. If, if secularism believes that the universe just sort of created itself and, and sustains itself, that we're here purposelessly and, and randomly, everything is meaningless. We're here because of a collision of atoms billions of years ago, and then animals evolved, and then apes evolved, and then we came from apes. How do you get from that to loving one another? So if, if our dominant theory in the secular world is, is natural selection, survival of the fittest, the strong eat the weak, how can our biggest value be equal rights? How can you get from the strong eat the weak to make sure you love everyone and don't offend anybody? It, it takes a big leap of faith. And so everyone is religious. We're more religious than we think. Both Christians and secular people are making religious leaps of faith, and the question is, what, what are, where do we go? What's, what's the step forward? And there's a, a great series of talks in a book by Tim Keller, who's an author in New York City, 
And the book's called Making Sense of God. If you want to read one book with this series, that's the one to get. But he says we need to evaluate our belief systems, whether Christian or secular, by three questions. Number one, are my beliefs consistent with each other? Number two, does my human experience fit my beliefs? In other words, can I actually live out this thing that I believe? And then number three, am I having to, va- to borrow values and, and practices from other religions and world beliefs in order to make mine work? So regardless of who you are, you need to approach what you believe in the same way. To choose re- Christianity or to reject it is a leap of faith. And so that's, that's the second thing. What is, what is the leap of faith that Christians are making? We've talked about the leap of faith that, that the secular person makes. What's the leap of faith that we're making as Christians. Our passage, Mark 9, Jesus enters a crowd with his disciples. It's a beautiful scene because the religious leaders are there. This is far enough into Jesus' ministry that they want him dead. They're plotting to kill him. He's reached celebrity status in the community. People are rushing from all over to wherever he is. A crowd has, has gathered. And this man has brought his, his son, his his sick and demon-possessed son, to the disciples, and the disciples try, and they're, they're unable to cast out this demon. So Jesus is with uh, his closest friends, Peter, James, and John. They're actually just coming down the mountain after the transfiguration. And when Jesus uh, arrives before the crowd, and he asks what the commotion is, this, this man comes forward. And Jesus says to the Father in front of everyone, Bring the boy to me. And it says they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw Jesus, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. Now this is a a supernatural moment. It's a moment that takes uh, faith just to even read this story and believe that it might be true. One of the things that we've lost in in our world through secularism is the belief that something supernatural can happen at all, that that anything at all that can't be explained can happen in the first place. And so we might look at a story like this and, and, and struggle from the beginning, but, but follow along. The father says, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. For the father, this is, is not a philosophical question. This is a, this is a personal one. This is a moment of desperation. If you're a parent, you know that there is no pain like the pain of, of seeing one of your children suffering. And this is a child that has suffered from birth in an incredible way that we can barely identify with. This man is, is completely desperate. He's probably tried everything, the essential oils, the CBD, nothing has worked. He's come to the disciples. Even the disciples can't heal his boy. Now he has Jesus in his midst. One last time, he says, if you can do anything, have compassion and help us. Jesus responds, if you can, All things are possible for the one who believes. And the text says, immediately the father cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And that's a phrase that I I love that I think is helpful for this entire series. He cries out, I believe, but help my unbelief. It's a statement of not great faith, but like a little bit of faith. He, He has some faith, but he has a lot of doubt, but at least he has a lot of honesty. He's, he's, not, he's not faking it before Jesus. He's not putting on a show for Jesus. He's so desperate, he's so raw that he simply says, I believe, but help my unbelief. 
And Jesus' response, it's incredible. He doesn't rebuke the man. He doesn't say, come back when you have more faith. He doesn't say, you shouldn't have these doubts. He doesn't say, you need to explore the major questions around the faith before you come to me, so go to Trinity Community Church on September 29th. Isn't it incredible? Jesus counts this as sufficient faith. It's enough. This is enough for Jesus. So the man says, I believe, help my unbelief. And then Jesus speaks to the demon directly. You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse so that most of them said he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. And so in Jesus' world, a, a little bit of faith mixed with some doubt but a lot of honesty, that's, that's enough for Jesus. That's a sufficient faith for Jesus. Jesus can, can work with that. Even his disciples didn't have enough faith to heal this boy, so everybody is lacking in faith to some degree or another. The question is, what do we learn from this encounter with Jesus? And I think the first thing we see is that coming to faith is, is a process. Coming to faith for most people, most of us that have experienced it, it requires uh, hundreds of little baby steps. And there is a moment where we, we finally believe and where Christ renews our hearts, but it is a process. It requires questions, it involves doubts, it involves leaps of faith, but it's a process for this man. Because the faith of, of Christianity is not a pure certainty. We cannot say to everyone, here is the exact reason we know that God is real. We can show you that 2,000 years ago, Jesus rose from the dead. There's no airtight case that we can make today. If, if there was, it would have been made a long time ago, and everybody would believe. But instead, Christianity is a faith. It's a belief system. There's a moment where you must make the leap of faith in Christ. And so faith doesn't require you to to leave your intelligence behind, but it does require more than just your mind. It requires your heart. It requires your, your entire being as well. And so coming to faith is a process. And the second thing is that your faith doesn't actually save you. It's not your faith that saves you. It's the object of your faith that saves you. And the difference is that it's not how much faith you have in Jesus that's the determining factor of if you get eternal life or not. It's Jesus' own strength and his glory and his love. And so you can have a little bit of faith in a great and a strong Savior, and that's enough to save you. A whole lot of faith in something that's not worthy of your faith is no good. So if you're in a car and you put your seatbelt on and you're in a car accident, it doesn't matter how much you believe in that seatbelt. It's either going to save you or it's not going to save you. You could have very, very little faith in your seatbelt, but it'll still hopefully do the job. You could have all the faith in the world in that seatbelt, and if it you know, strays and spreads into a thousand pieces, then your faith was really no good. What matters most is not the amount of your faith or the purity of your faith, but it's the object of your faith. The message of Christianity is that God loves those he has made and that he sent his son to restore them to himself. The good news is that the kingdom of God is now among us, that when Jesus came to earth and when he lived a perfect life and when he died and when he rose again, he was inaugurating, starting a new kingdom that's available right now. 
And so the eternal life that he offers is not a, an eternal life later, it's an eternal life that begins the moment that we believe. And the best news of Christianity is that it's entirely by grace. We haven't earned our way to Christ. We haven't proved ourselves. You don't have to clean up your life. You don't have to figure out everything before you come to Jesus. Your salvation is not based on the purity of your life, but the base, it's based on the purity of Jesus' life. And that purity is transferred to you upon faith. And so your faith does matter. Without faith, no one can see God. And yet it's not the strength of your faith, it's the object of your faith that saves you. And the third thing we learn from the encounter is that Jesus longs to heal you. Jesus wants to bring healing into your life. This man was, was desperate. I love the way he, he was persistent. He put himself in the path of Jesus. He put himself in, in the one place where he could find healing. It's clear he doesn't have perfect faith. He says, if you can do anything, have compassion on us. He might have wanted some kind of partial healing. And yet he did the one thing that mattered. He put himself in a place to be healed by Christ. He says, have compassion on us and help us. And it's interesting that Jesus' healing, it initially looks like death. People think that this boy has died when he's healed. But we know around Jesus that death and destruction, they never get the final word. Darkness never has the final word around Jesus. Jesus is the only one with authority over life and death. And so casting out the demon, it seems as though the boy dies, and yet he picks him up by the hand, and the boy rises. In the same way, Jesus longs to heal every one of us, to take us by the hand and lift us up into new life. Now, in closing, I've, I've been thinking more than, than the normal amount this past week. Why, why do I believe? What is it that, that drew me to Christianity? What is it that keeps me a Christian? There's an old quote by C.S. Lewis where he says, I don't, I don't believe in God because I can see him like the sun, but I believe because like the sun, I can see everything else by it. It's through Christianity, everything else makes sense the way we see everything illuminated by the sun. And I, I, I don't need uh, a faith that's absolutely airtight, where if you follow the process and you get the reasoning just right, it all fits together like a puzzle, although I think Christianity does, far so, more so than anything else in the world. What I need is something that makes sense of my own life, my own, my own longings, my desires, my, my desires for connection, for a relationship, to be part of something bigger than myself, for, for life after death. I need something that makes sense of this world and its brokenness, that makes sense of the hope that I have for redemption, not just for myself, but for everyone. I need something that makes sense of my, my entire life experience. And uh, many years ago, at, at the lowest and darkest moment of my life, it was after a great tragedy, I, I felt like I had an experience of Christ that was as real as, as anybody else in, in front of me. And you might not believe that, and if, if that's the case, that's, that's fine. I don't hold it against you. But my experience of Christ was of being in his presence in a moment of, of an incredible desperation and in darkness where all I wanted to do was be angry at God, run 
away from the faith, even take my own life, just something final and definitive. I felt like I was in the presence of Christ and he was right in front of me. And the question that he, he asked me was a question he asked Peter in the Gospels, which was, who do you say that I am? And in that moment, it wasn't a philosophical question. It wasn't a, it wasn't a, a demand. It wasn't a challenge. It was, it was an honest question, and it was an invitation. Who do you say that I am? Who, who am I for you? And, and since that moment, I was already a believer at that point. I had lived a pretty good and moral life. But ever since that moment, I've noticed that nothing else in my life has ever provided uh, even a measure of satisfaction close to walking with the Lord. And so I look at these little moments of maybe success and achievement that I've felt. And what happens with those little bits of success and achievement is that I, I become more dependent on them and more anxious about losing that accomplishment and I just work harder for it. A few times that I've felt like I've gotten a little bit of money or security, I realize that I just need more money and security and I'm more anxious about money than I was beforehand. The times that I've finally felt some kind of social acceptance or social status that I've been working for for so long, that's the same moment that I'm now, I'm now bound to it. I need these people to approve of me. I'm so afraid of losing and being rejected. I found that everything else in life basically works like an addiction. You find something like, like the approval of, of your coworkers, and then the minute you have it, it's like a quick hit, but then it fades away and you need another one. But then that second hit has to be even stronger and greater than the first one, and it just draws you deeper and deeper in, and it becomes harder and harder to get out of. Virtually everything else in life works like an addiction, and, and it works against us. But in Christ and his church, it's, it's the one thing where I've found peace, where I've found a, an end to all that striving, trying to prove myself, trying to gather for myself, trying to get in the right crowd and with the right people. Only in Christ all my, my longings and desires find some kind of conclusion. Every time I turn back to God, it's not a, it's not a quick high that I have to come back to again, but it's a deep assurance and it's, it's a peace that's, that's abiding, that lasts. And so my mind is is satisfied. There's so much evidence for Christianity, for the resurrection, and we'll look at that in the coming weeks. But my heart, too, is, is satisfied. And I think that's probably the greatest case for Christianity as well, at all, that we can find rest in God, rest that we can find nowhere else in the world. And so I don't have all the answers, but I know how Jesus has changed my life. And you might say, what if, what if you're wrong? What if we're wrong? And I would say, if, if this peace is wrong, then I'll be wrong all day long, every day of the week, twice on the Sabbath. Let's pray.